0: So we're going to step out of Nehemiah here for a couple of weeks and um, start back up early in January with that. So this week, kind of a Christmas-like message. Next Sunday, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and actually, both this morning and next week, we'll um, you'll see some connection with the themes of our prayer and fasting focus um, in early December here. Uh, so we want to not just leave that behind, but carry through with some of the things that God has has shown us and things that He's laid on our hearts during that time. So, we're going to look at Isaiah 63 and 64. In just a minute here, I want to ask some questions and just get you thinking about your own heart, your own life. Have you ever wanted to run? Just run from this world? I mean, certainly even some of you may have had thoughts of ending your life. I just want to I just want to done done with I'll run from this world. I want to run from my life. Have you also ever looked at someone and had what we might call like spiritual envy? Like it sure seems that God works for them but not really for me. He seems to answer their prayers. Seems to provide in really encouraging ways for them. Seems to come through when, when they need him to. He seems to be really real to them. But you wonder if he ever answers your prayers. And maybe you've prayed for certain things for so long and nothing. And you've been disappointed over and over and over, over the years. So for the last three weeks, we've been praying and fasting for revival, to know God's love for us, to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love others sincerely and sacrificially. And we put a quote about revival in one of the devotionals and in some email communication, and... Maybe you read it, even if you did read it, I think reading it again is worthwhile. And I, I wonder if this fired your longing and filled your prayers. Um, I hope that it has. So Tim Keller wrote this. He said, revivals can be longer lasting several years or shorter, enduring only a few weeks. They can be more widespread, affecting a whole town or region or country or more narrow, more narrow in scope, such as just one congregation but they are seasons in which the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit are intensified manyfold. Sleepy and immature believers become electrified through joyful repentance and put Christ in the center of their lives. Nominal Christians within congregations get converted and testify to the fact, which leads to more sleepy believers waking up. In turn, non-believers are drawn into the beautified Christian community, and begin embracing Christ in numbers that defy normal explanations. The quote-unquote church growth can't be accounted for by demographic sociological shifts or efficient outreach programs in such cases. Most telling of all, the corporate worship gatherings are thick with a sense of the presence of God that is not orchestrated by the presiders. I mean, come on. Do you want any of that? Like, do you long for people to become electrified through joyful repentance and put Christ in the center of their lives, for for people who don't know Jesus to be drawn into the beautified Christian community and begin embracing Christ, and for our gatherings, our worship gatherings, to be thick with a sense of the presence of God that can't be orchestrated simply by musical excellence, although we're thankful for that. So as we end this planned time of fasting and prayer and we head into Christmas, let's not leave those prayers behind. Let's let Advent, you know, revival in one hand, Advent in, in the other. Let's let Advent throw some gas on the fire, put some more wood on the fire of our longings and our prayers. Advent means coming, right? So it's the season four weeks, four Sundays before Christmas, so it started on November 28th and ends at Christmas, and it's a fo- we focus our attention on the first coming of Christ, the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us. So what we're going to consider this morning are the themes of revival and Advent. And may it throw gas and some wood on the fire of our longings and our prayers for God to work in a mighty way in us and through us in this coming year that's ahead. So we're going to start in Isaiah, and we're going to follow a theme of God opening the heavens, rending the heavens, and coming down through the Bible a little bit. So Um, Just kind of take that thread. We're not going to hit every place where that happens in the Bible, but several. So we're going to start in Isaiah, and we're going to read some in Isaiah 63, 64. You can follow along on the screen, or if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can do that as well. So point number one is rend the heavens. And we've been considering studying the book of Nehemiah recently, right? So Isaiah was written many years before Nehemiah was on the scene. Even before the exile to Babylon, he warned Judah, southern kingdom, of the judgment of God that was to come because they were just sticking their fingers in their ears to God. Hard hearted, idolatrous, and that judgment came. But Isaiah also prophesied hope, future hope. So, the latter half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, there's this radiant hope that's predicted way before it would be realized. But God did it. He gave it through Isaiah early so that once his people did come to their senses in exile, they would have hope. And he also did it to demonstrate again that he alone is God in control, knowing the end from the beginning. And he can predict exactly what's going to happen because he's in control of all of human history. None of the gods of the nations that they had bowed down to could do that. He alone was sovereign and in control. So Isaiah is praying here in Isaiah 63 and 64. He's really, in effect, teaching us as God's people, God's future people, how to pray in this passage. So Isaiah 63, 15 says, look down from heaven and see. We read this a few minutes ago. From your holy habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you, O Yahweh, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. So this is continuing some themes. Just a couple chapter, or you know, just one chapter earlier, Isaiah 62, 1. Isaiah prayed this way, for, or he spoke this way, For Zion's sake, for the city of God's sake, I will not keep silent. He's a prophet. Everybody didn't want to hear him preach. They wanted him to shut up and go away. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And then a few verses later down in Isaiah 62, 6. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. We, God's people, should give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Establish the city of God, the people of God, and make it a praise in the earth. So Lord, you're zealous for your glory. You're mighty. You are almighty. But we don't see it. That's what Isaiah is saying. We don't see it. Don't hold back, God. Would you please ask You're our Father. You're our Redeemer. You've done it before. Do it again. In your fatherly love and compassion, would you arise and act and deliver us again? Do what needs to be done for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Do whatever it takes so that your kingdom will come, so that your name will be hallowed. Yes, you see, that's how we ought to pray. So 64.1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Exclamation point. Like, those are in there. Oh, there's like emphasis. This is a heart cry and a longing. You remember when God came down and showed up at Sinai? when he brought, people, brought his people out of Egypt? What happened to that mountain when God showed up? It's quaking. It's like an earthquake on this mountain. So when God shows up, you can tell, right? When fire is blazing, you know it. You can see it. The brushwood just crackles and burns up quickly. Or if you've got water on that fire, it boils. Things happen. So Isaiah longs for God to come down and do it again like he's done in the past. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Awesome things that we did not look for. So God never violates his character, right? He is faithful and true. But that doesn't mean he's predictable. Far from it, right? I mean, who would have expected 10 plagues? water to blood etc 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 who would have expected getting backed up against the red sea we are toast and a cloud and the the water part i mean can you imagine what that would have been like to walk through on dry ground like who expected that He led them, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He gave them bread from heaven. What is this? Who would have expected that? A little later on, he made a fleece dry when the ground was wet and vice versa. He routed a huge army with an army of 300. And that army was armed primarily with jars and trumpets. He killed a giant threat by the hand of a teenager with a sling. He showed his superiority over Baal by sending fire down from heaven and burning up a soaked, wet sacrifice. He put 185,000 enemy soldiers to death in a moment in response to the desperate pleas and prayers of his people. Like when God shows up, you can tell. Awesome things. Like don't you want him to do awesome things again? Verse four, for from of old no, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts, who works for those who wait for him. All the false gods, the idols, that their hearts and our hearts can so easily fixate on, things that displace God's first place in our hearts that he alone deserves to hold, they can't really do anything for us. Yahweh, on the other hand, no one has heard. No eye has seen a God like this who works for those who wait for him. So why does it seem that he's often sitting idly by? If he's this grand worker, like, would you... Do something. Anybody been discouraged? You know, looking around. I mean, we could list news events. Maybe just if we stuck with news events, sadly, in the church in America. Abusive pastors, deconversion stories of well-known former, what do we call them? Former professing, professing Christians. And the ripple effect and how that impacts others who were impacted by them. Ravi Zacharias's wolf-like manipulation and abuse. Why? Why did you let this happen? Why don't you do something? But it's not just out there, right? It's also in here. It's in our lives. Heartbreaking, terribly painful circumstances, physical suffering, Some of it terrible, some of it interminable. Mental suffering, emotional suffering, some of it terrible, some of it terribly discouraging. Habitual sins that we try to fight and too often give into and we hate and we pray that God would take it away. And we feel helpless and hopeless. Why won't you do something? Look down from heaven and see where are your zeal and your might. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's an advent cry. Where are you? Why won't you show up? Why won't you do something? But wait, just... Let's not forget that apart from Jesus that prayer do we really want God to answer that like apart from Jesus if God comes down we are in big trouble I I love this section in C.S. Lewis from the book Miracles he says men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract deity to the living God the pantheist God does nothing demands nothing He's there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There's no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. But the question is, what if he does pursue? What if he does show up? Like when the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God, of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. That is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly, Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he had found us. So there's this uh, science fiction writer, Arthur Clarke, who wrote, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. Our God is a consuming fire. Apart from Jesus, we are toast. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all rebelled against the king. We are guilty of cosmic insurrection. I mean, by nature, if we can, you know, use God like a good luck charm, like a lucky rabbit's foot to get what we want, then well and good, but... What we really want is our will done on earth. We wanna be God. So thankfully, when God came down, it wasn't to wipe us out and give us what we deserve, but instead to save us, as we read in Matthew one already. So point number two, rending the heavens. So there was the cry, rend the heavens. God answers here in the incarnation. What is the incarnation? It is an absolute wonder. God, God took on human flesh forever. Just just try to take some time this afternoon and just stop and think about that this afternoon and just try to get your mind around it. How in the world does God take on flesh? This is not a temporary thing. Do you know that? He took on human flesh forever. God willingly did that. For you and for me. The word that made the world became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, explained him. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, God in the flesh. This is amazing. Let's pray that we can press into this mystery, this like mind-boggling, heart-swelling, soul-stirring reality a little deeper this year. So, familiarity is dangerous, right? But repetition and pondering and preparing him room again this year can mean that we could grasp it a little bit deeper, that it would become a little bit more real, a little bit sweeter. Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, which he had, a thing to be held on to, grasped, just Used to his own advantage. He willingly emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. God willingly became a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a shameful cross. There's this quote by, I have a couple of quotes from, Scottish theologians, I don't know how to on the same day, but it just happened that way. So Donald Macleod, first, every year the world and the church experiences Christmas, that curious amalgam of paganism, commercialism, and Christianity which Western civilization has invented to tide over the darkest days of the winter. Christmas is a lost opportunity, a time when the world invites the church to speak and she blushes, smiles, and mutters a few banalities with which the world is already perfectly familiar from its own stock of cliches and nursery rhymes. No, Christmas is not some tacky or nostalgic birthday party for a mythical tribal deity. But instead, as McLeod goes on to say, Christmas is the perforation of history by one from eternity, the intrusion and eruption of the eternal into the existence of man. The perforation of history. Like God came down. He rent the heavens and came down. That is just mind-boggling. Then James Stewart says this, "'He was the meekest and lowly of, lowliest of all the sons of men, "'yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven "'with the glory of God. "'He was so austere that evil spirits and demons "'cried out in terror at his coming, "'yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable "'that the children loved to play with him "'and the little ones nestled in his arms.'" His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, He has all our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. God came down. He rent the heavens and came down and in a way that no one expected, awesome things. So we live on this side of the resurrection, right? And we've heard it so often that we no longer wonder That's G.K. Chesterton quote. But it's not because we suffer from want of wonders, it's because we suffer from a want of wonder. Oh God, awaken our wonder. Give us our awe back. Help us to be in awe of the right things. We often wonder at the wrong things. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I don't trust myself with this. We can get more impressed with an iPhone than with the human eye. We can say ooh and ah more at fireworks show than at the sun, which granted is kind of a, you know, average star as stars go, but just mind boggling on its own. So take that star that I think, here's the thing, I kind of dip into the star details and data here and there. And so the star you're talking about, Brian, I think I have not read about that one yet because I thought it was the the orbit of Jupiter. But the problem is they just keep finding bigger stars. The problem, that's actually a good thing, maybe. But just, I mean, there are trillions apparently of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars like this, our star is average. Like those those numbers are kind of mind-boggling, but they start to get at the the grandeur, the just absolute vastness of the universe. And this is just God's finger work, and then that God shows up. Like, imagine taking that star that Brian mentioned, and put it down into a glow stick, and it's like. In the same village with you. (laughs) Like, oh, I really hope it doesn't break, break open. We just trifle with God. There's so much more of who He is to see and to know. And all of that, because of Jesus, because of the first Advent, all of that greatness is for us. Like, the first Advent is amazing oh, come down by your spirit and help us see your glory. Help us see your glory this Advent season. Help us see your glory in the Advent. May we wonder at the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. Okay, why did he come? We know this. To save us. So think about it. The incarnation. He had to take on flesh and blood. Hebrews 2, he's inhabiting our place, our skin. He's not above us only, but with us, as one of us, for us. So full identification with us so that he could represent us, so that he could substitute for us in our place on the cross, so that he could reconcile us. Full identification for representation, for substitution for reconciliation. Yes, <laughs> the first coming of Christ, which leads to the next rending. So that's the incarnation. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? Don't you think it should be the other way around? John thought it should be the other way around. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and here it is again. Behold, the heavens were opened. It's the same verb as Isaiah 64. Rend the heavens. The heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So why did Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? Not for repentance. He was without sin. Not for his sins, but for ours. Again, the baptism, you're gonna see a pattern here. Incarnation, baptism, cross. Cross. Ready? Full identification. Let it be so now for righteousness' sake, to fulfill all righteousness. He's fully identifying with his sinful people for representation, to represent us before God, to be our substitute. Do you remember in John 1.29 when Jesus walks by, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Substitution. That Lamb in our place. His blood, not ours. For the sake of reconciliation. So the rending of the heavens at Jesus' baptism is actually a foreshadowing of the cross. It's also stamp of approval on the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. In Him I'm well pleased. But it's also a foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus fully identifies with us, God in the flesh, to represent us so that we don't have to suffer eternally for our sins, to be our substitute that we might be reconciled. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Which leads to the next point. (laughs) The rending, not of the skies, but of the curtain. So at the cross, the substitution for the sake of reconciliation was completed. It is finished. The payment was fully made for us. Full identification for representation, for substitution, for reconciliation. The curtain in the temple was rent. It was torn from top to bottom. Why? So that we could enter in to God's presence so that we could be reconciled forever. The curtain was torn. Jesus' body was torn so that we could be healed. So the heavens were rent in the incarnation, the baptism of Jesus, and the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son was rent, was torn on the cross so that the curtain would be rent and we would be brought into God's presence, holy of holies, brought in, reconciled, adopted, healed. It's all ours in Christ now. And now, we long for and we cry out to God to rend the heavens and come down again. Ultimately, at his return, to right every wrong, to heal every hurt and to make all things new. And in the meantime, we continue to cry out that he would work to help and strengthen and deliver and heal his people en route to that final return. So for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So we continue to cry out as his people, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We are longing for everything made new. but we are also longing for his kingdom to come and his will to be done and his name to be hallowed now. So it's just really easy for us to grow dull to these things, right? I mean, I think we're encouraged to sing these songs and and think these thoughts and to gain some perspective, but it's so easy for us to walk through the week and think, so little of God's greatness and glory and holiness and transcendence to think so little of our own sinfulness to think too little of his mercy and his love so let's fifth point rend our hearts in response listen to the prophet Joel for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it again without Jesus as our righteousness we're in trouble Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Joel goes on to state that Yahweh had pity on his people. And he was going to bless and deliver them. They didn't have to fear any longer. They should rejoice and be glad in their God who will provide for them and restore the years the locusts have (laughs) eaten. Whoa, locusts have eaten. Where did I get (laughs) oaten? So they will be satisfied. They will praise the name of Yahweh, their God, who's dealt wondrously with them. And then Joel 2.28 says this, and it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens, and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Which gets picked up at Pentecost, another rending of the heavens when God comes down to meet his people. So, where we need to, where we are dull and cold and blind to the glory of God, and maybe way too prone to allow the things of this world to own our awe and our wonder, let's rend our hearts. Cry out for God to rend the heavens and come down and help us. Do it again, Lord. Deliver your people again when you did awesome things that we didn't look for. Right? Nobody expected the Christ to be born to a peasant family and be laid in a feed trough. No one expected him to live in obscurity until he was about 30. No one expected him to be so humble and meek. No one expected him to shake up the religious establishment like he did or die on the cross like a wicked criminal. No one expected him to burst forth on the third day from the grave, having dealt death, its death blow. No ear has heard, nor eye seen a God like ours who works for those who wait for him and seek him. So he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. He surprised us before, he can do it again. So may it not be the case that we have not the grace that we need because we ask not. Have you given up? Like, are there any areas in your life where you've just given up? Do you want to run away from your life? Or maybe you're just tired and weary and you don't have any run left in you. I read this quote this morning. I love it by Ray Ortland. He says, God can be found not with a guru on a mountaintop, but right where you are if you're willing. You don't need to run from your life. It's where God wants to meet you. You don't need to wait for ideal conditions. You just need to use the life you do have to remember God and His ways. So think back this pattern of God coming down, coming down, coming down to deliver. He is willing, He is able. He's done it over and over and over again. We have help, we have hope for this life, and we look forward with anticipation to the final rending, rending the heavens at the second advent. We wait in hope. Last point. So he is coming again. Jesus is coming again and he's gonna right every wrong. He's gonna administer perfect justice. He's gonna make all things new. Like just read Revelation 21 and 22 slowly and ponder and savor it. There is gonna be no more curse, no more futility, no more struggle with sin. Completely gone. Can you imagine being able to act on every thought and impulse with perfect freedom? Because there's just nothing twisted or, or wrong anymore. Like, oh, that he would come down, rend the heavens, come back, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come, right? No more failure. No more shame. No more disappointment. No more fear. No more threats. No more anxiety. No more depression. (coughs) All that's going to be left is, (coughs) excuse me, oh my goodness, don't do that. Okay. (coughs) Wow. No more microphones. Um, All that's going to be left is fullness of joy forever. You make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Tim Keller says this about Christianity, what Christianity can provide that no one and no other religion can provide. And this is all on the basis of the first and second advents. This is why these things are true for us. A meaning in life that suffering can't take away. A satisfaction not based on circumstances. A freedom that doesn't turn community and love relationships into thin transactions. An identity that's not fragile, not based on performance or exclusion. A way to deal with guilt and to forgive without residual bitterness or shame. A basis for seeking justice that doesn't turn you into an oppressor yourself. And a way to face not only the future but death itself with poise and peace. How in the world, like those are the things we long for. How in the world can we have all of those things because of the first advent and the absolutely sure and certain hope of the second advent? So, oh God, would you run the heavens and come down and make these things real to us so that we, your church, would shine with your light, that we wouldn't give up, that we would continue to pray, may your name be hallowed in me, in our church, in this community. More and more and more, may your kingdom come Help us, Lord, to willingly submit to your kingship in every nook and cranny of life. And help other people to bow the knee now so that they're not forced to at the end when Jesus returns. So that we will continue as his people to ask and seek and knock and not lose heart and give up. So let's pray. Bethel, and not lose heart. And if that's going to be the case, we need to make sure we don't lose sight of our father's heart. Demonstrate it so beautifully, gloriously, in mind-boggling ways, in the advent of his son.